When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Hello, Cricket Badgers everywhere. Welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. Got a really good guest for you this week. It's the former Yorkshire batsman, the current Worcester coach, Kevin Sharp, mate of mine when I was working at Yorkshire. All round good egg. And I think you'll find that his answers to the Cricket Badger 20 questions this week, really good. Really entertaining stuff from Kevin Sharp. So we'll be with him very, very soon indeed. As you know, I've been dedicating various editions of the Cricket Badger podcast to different people as we've gone through lockdown. It's just been announced that it's going to be extended for another three weeks. So hopefully the Cricket Badger podcast keeping you entertained as we go through this period of uncertainty in England and around the world. And I was listening to Radio 5 the other day and they had Ramesh Ranganathan on who was giving parenting advice. And he was called by a father of three, well, obviously three triplets, who were 11 years old, three girls, who were making it rather hard for him to work from home. And I commented on that on Twitter. And Simon Willis got in touch with me. He said he's got three triplets, two-year-old, got his hands full as Simon. So this one goes out to Simon and to everybody out there who is struggling through lockdown with children at home, experiencing slightly different summers to what we were expecting. And finally, before we get to Kevin Sharp's interview, my thanks, massive thanks to John Wright of tvsportsblog.com who've come forward to sponsor the Cricket Badger podcast. Have a look at tvsportsblog.com. Really good sporting content on there. Really good to be working with John and his company. Give him a follow at John Wright 15 Give them a follow at TV Sports Blog. Their support through the coronavirus crisis is hugely appreciated as we work together with tvsportsblog.com. Anyway, enough of me rambling on. Let's have a listen to the 20 questions, the Cricket Badger podcast. This edition is with Kevin Sharp. Hi, my name is Brian Lara, and you're listening to the Cricket Badger podcast. It's that Badger style. 
Right, it's a pleasure on this week's Cricket Badger podcast to welcome back a friend of the Badger and a, a previous guest on the podcast, Kevin Sharp. How are you? Hello, James. Uh, I'm okay, thank you. I'm, I'm in isolation. Sat at home, I think, like everybody else. Just wondering what the next few weeks has in store for us. Yeah, it's, I think it kind of comes to a stage, doesn't it, Kev, with what's going on in the world, that cricket falls quite a long way down the pecking order, I suppose. But, I mean, it's important to us, but it's in the general scheme of things, it's not important, really. Well, no, look, I mean, you've only got to look at the news every day and see what's happening, you know, with illness and that sort of thing. And it pales into insignificance a little bit, really. I mean, we were all as everybody would be ready to go. And ironically, the weather's been quite nice as well, hasn't it? <laughs> I guess the, I mean, looking at Worcester always pre-season, I, I see pictures of New Road underwater and I, I see, uh, you kind of start to think, can the groundsman get the, 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 the pitch ready? You, you'd be loving to have those kind of problems at the moment, wouldn't you, rather than the coronavirus and no sport at all? Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, the ground's been in a hell of a mess. It's been unbelievable to see it I mean I know the groundsman Tim Packwood has did tell me that it's the worst he's seen it looking in his time at the club and that's over 30 years you know there's been it's been flooded probably about six or seven times now over the last 12 months and maybe four or five times since October so most of the winter the ground's been underwater and when it's receded to see the state of it is quite tragic really but you know that you know once they're able to to get to work on it that you know it'll recover you know in a reasonable time is there any thoughts i mean I, I i've seen pictures tweeted over the winter as i say of new road underwater and a lot of people say well why don't they move has, has that ever been a, a, a thought process i mean it'd be horrible to leave new road it's one of the most beautiful grounds in the world isn't it yeah it is i mean i you know i mean i i think the groundsman said it's been flooded certainly 23 winters in the last 30 it's affected, I think, I believe, if I'm right in thinking that it's affected the summer twice, which was obviously last year and then, I believe, in 2007. I mean, look, James, it's such an iconic ground and such a beautiful ground that people want to come to. And I suppose the sad part about it is it's, um, yes, it's on a floodplain, but it's not priority because, you know, there's no real housing that's that's that, 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 that's trouble there when it when it comes across from the... It's where the River Seven reach, meets the River Team, which is about a mile and a half further down from the ground. Yeah. Well, you're going to take on the Cricket Badger 20 questions today, Kevin Sharp. And uh, we're going to start off with question number one. If not cricket in your life, what would you have done with yourself? I'd have played for Leeds United. Good choice. You know, it would have been me or Johnny Giles at number 10. But, been, you know, I was always very keen on my soccer um, football as a kid and did quite well. Played as a lad, uh, who, were, who were a very good team in, in 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 that era anyway. But I think that I realised that you know I was going to be better at cricket and uh, and pursued that. But whether I'd have been good, I don't think I'd have been good enough for football. So if it would have been something else, James, I'm not sure what it would have been because I just wanted to play cricket. And, Fortunately, it, it happened. Sport or nothing? Yeah, it was really. I mean, I just sort of really wanted to play cricket and play it for a living. And and I never thought about doing anything else. And obviously, I, I went to Yorkshire as a 16-year-old and went on to the staff there and, you know, made my debut against North Hans as, as a 16-year-old at Scarborough. At the end of that season, I was 
I believe I think I was the third youngest player ever to play for Yorkshire at that point. Um, you know, I think Brian Close and, and Doug Padgett were the two previously, and you know, obviously that's changed over the years. There's quite a few lads who've gone on and played at a younger age now. Who has been the biggest influence on your cricket career? Oh gosh, I think I need to go back to um, younger days, really, in that respect. Um, I had some really good coaches as a kid. There was a guy called Jerry McConiff, uh, uh, who coached at Leeds Cricket Club at Headingley when I was a boy. Uh, Mike Fernley took me to... Um, Mike, who, who worked as an assistant coach with Doug Padgett for a while, took me to, to Bentley as a 15-year-old um, to play in the Bradford League. Um, Ian Steen, who, who was manager of Yorkshire under-15s, you know, was a big influence, gave me a lot of confidence to go on and and push me towards playing at a higher level. So probably in my younger days, um, those three guys, I mean, Doug Padgett as, as coach at Yorkshire was always there to uh, and help as, as, as we went along. If I could take you back to any day in your, in your life in cricket, it can be coaching, it can be playing, but what day would you like to relive more than any other? What's been your best day in cricket? Just one. Can, can, I, can I mention more than one? You, you can, it's your 20 questions, Kev. You can do whatever you like. Right, well, I've been my first 100 for Yorkshire at Lords in 1980, um, which is obviously fantastic. Uh, I was batting with David Burstow, who helped get me over the line. Uh, I would have been 20 years old then. Uh, you know, obviously, your first 100 for Yorkshire at Lords is uh, something that one will never forget. Probably actually do a... Two occasions as a coach would be when uh, I was working at the Bradford Leeds Uni and um, I came across a guy called Anthony McGrath, who I think you know quite well. And Magsy started to come to, I uh, met him by accident. It was before I went back to Yorkshire as a coach. And Magsy asked if we could do some some one-to-one batting sessions together. And we started doing that over the course of the summer and it, and it went quite well. And Yorkshire got to the final of the um, 50 over comp at Lords that year. And he gave me his two tickets, four tickets, actually, for the final. Myself and Jan went with two friends. And McGrath got Yorkshire over the line with uh, Matthew Elliott at the end of that match. One of the first things that happened after the game was that I got a text message from Mags just to say thank you for your help. Without your support, this wouldn't have happened. And for that to come five minutes after it just taken Yorkshire over the line to win a cup final was special for me. Very special, you know, and it's something I'll never forget because it's it's the next best thing that to actually doing well yourself as a player is to see somebody that you work with do well. And the other occasion would be that um, having known young Joe Root from being 13 years old, I can remember asking him one day, saying to him that you won't forget me when you're playing for England, will you? You'll leave me two tickets on the gate at Lords. And he said, uh, of course I won't forget you. And then many years later, when he made his first appearance as England captain against South Africa and made 180 uh, on that day at Lords, both Jan and I were in the crowd, sat with um, Joe's mum and family and, and dad. It was brilliant. And granddad. It was brilliant. That that's kind of testament to those two guys as well, isn't it? I mean, Matt, you know, Mags and Rooty, they're not only very fine players, but they're, they're two good blokes, aren't they? 
two top blokes and they still keep in touch and that's brilliant. You know, I mean, obviously I came across Magsy last year in the T20 final at Lords where Essex just pipped us on the last ball of the of the game. Um, but, you know, I'm delighted for him, for Mags. I mean, he was a, a top player for Yorkshire, but he's now becoming a, a very, very respected and top-class coach, so really pleased for him. And obviously, Joel, doing what he's doing is, is fantastic, and it doesn't surprise me that he's turned out to be the top player and top bloke that he is. But what's really nice, just occasionally out of the blue, you'll get a little message just to say how you're doing, and that's fantastic. Just to add to that was the great occasion at Edgebaston a couple of years ago of Worcestershire winning the T20 finals day. A very special moment for all of us. The club had never been to a finals day. We had a very challenging quarter-final, a quite a tense affair against Gloucestershire at New Road. And it, the game could have gone either way. It was quite a low-scoring game. Everybody was quite tense, the crowd, the players, us as coaches. Because you know, Worcestershire had never been there before, and Callum Ferguson played a lovely innings and managed to get us over the line in that. So there was a, a lot of relief. We turned up at Edgebaston, probably slightly as underdogs. Um, you know, there was some um, Lancashire were there and Sussex, Somerset, and the lads were really sort of relaxed and very focused. Played brilliantly on the day with a lot of people on our side, and obviously as a coach. To have in, in my first year as a as a head coach to, to to win a trophy such as that was something very special. So that is something that you know I'll never I'll never forget. And that that day came because I was watching that on the television, and from a distance it looked like Moen Ali was very sort of a calming influence on that Worcestershire side because there have been a few nerves in that dressing room I guess coming into that first finals day and stuff, and you need a few old heads there. Yeah, I mean I'll never forget the day before the final. Uh, Moen, you know, is is a is a calm, calculated, and very smart cricket player. And we were all together at New Road the day before the final, and we we all came round in a group. And Moen said a few words, and all he said was that he looked at everybody man for man and said, "I want everybody to expect to play two games tomorrow." And that was it, really. And it was quite powerful uh, because, he, in a way, for me, he was almost saying that we're going to win without saying it and that was very special and and on the day I think actually there was more excitement than nerves from the lads obviously natural nerves but I think the excitement of just being there and and the thought of just enjoying the occasion was the biggest overriding factor for all of us and the lads went out and and performed you know I mean Ben Cox particularly had a very special day where he won man of the match in both games and obviously got runs with the bat and obviously did something very special in both games, but certainly, you know, in those last five overs of the final against uh, Sussex. I, I sent you a picture this morning, Mr. Kevin, of myself hung over in Abu Dhabi after a, I disgraced myself on a Yorkshire pre-season tour. On a scale of one to ten, what was your hangover like the day after that final? Were you, were you, did you disgrace yourself or you well behaved? Well, I, I think... Uh, as I've got older, I've probably matured slightly. In, yeah, right. <laughs> the uh, there wasn't a lot of sleep. We stayed um, in Birmingham that night and went back to the hotel after a, a long party in the dressing room. Stayed up for there for a while, so there wasn't much sleep. Unfortunately, a, a, a fairly quiet day before we, we started preparing for championship cricket the following day. Where does that memory, because that's obviously in your coaching capacity, how does that 
go with winning stuff or, or winning matches with Yorkshire as a player? And, you know, as a player, you're obviously able to influence stuff on the pitch, but does it does it match it as a coach? Does it is it has it the same impact on you? Well, I mean, I've been involved in winning three trophies, never a championship. You know, back in nineteen eighty three, the John Player League, yeah, for Yorkshire, and then in nineteen ninety seven, the B and H Lords against Northants, and they're obviously very special occasions. But it's a long time since nineteen eighty seven to two thousand <laughs> to two thousand and eighteen, and you know the the, the different feeling. I felt I was. You know, certainly the, the, the T21 was almost like a, a, a feeling of real pride and, and, and a thought of, you know, at, at my time of life now was to, to, to have been able to achieve something like that that I'd been involved in, you know, not just for myself but for fellow coaches, team and the supporters and the club as a whole was something that kind of very special. It kind of makes you realise that's, that's why you go to work. I remember you coming on with um, Andrew Gale and Anthony McGrath on a, on a previous edition of the podcast. And that was the kind of winter in between, winning that T20. And then you came very close to retaining it. And I said to Gailey and I said to Mags, you're going to be trying to take that off uh, off Mr. Kevin then, aren't you, this next year? But you, you came very close to keeping hold of it. Oh, there were two incredible games in the in the final finals day last year. I mean, we, we were all but out of it with 10 balls to go against Knots. Um, you know, there was no way in the world, really, that we were going to win that. And, and we did. The lads held the nerve and, you know, we got through off the last ball in that one. So to actually get to the final was something that, with 10 balls to go, you didn't anticipate. And then, of course, it went down to the wire again against Essex. And I have to say that I don't think we lost that. I think that Bafara and Harmer won it for Essex. Bafara played a very good innings. Harmer came in. And the pitch, you know, it wasn't fast scoring wicket. It's quite slow and it wasn't easy to time the ball. And Harmer came in at the end and, and just timed it from ball one. And as soon as he did that, he thought, oh, oh no. And, you know, but again, it could have gone either way. And, you know, it, it was a fine partnership by those two lads who won it for Essex. We didn't lose it in any way. I guess if you're going to relinquish it to somebody, I mean, you've already mentioned that you've got a very close relationship with Anthony McGrath. Seeing him with a smile on his face at the end of it, I guess, isn't a bad second prize. No, uh, we, we had a quick chat after the game. And if I was going to be pleased for anybody, it would be him. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Head over there for some excellent coverage of a wide variety of sports. Give them a follow as well on Twitter on at tvsportsblog. We've talked about your best moments in cricket. What would be your worst moment in cricket? Is there a day in your cricket life that you wouldn't want to relive? Oh, gosh. I'll have to think about that one. There's been so many good memories. Yeah, good one, this. We were playing at Bristol in a championship match and we had the worst day in the field of all time. We dropped about seven catches and I dropped three of them at slip. I can remember the first ball of the game, Stuart Fletcher bowled to uh, Andy Stovold, who had a big whoosh outside off stump. And it flew to me at second slip. We stood far too close and um, it hit me in the chest. And then things went from bad to worse because 
mid-afternoon, I dropped the most simpler catches at, at second slip off Chris Shaw. And um, it was one of those days where you just wanted uh, a hole to appear in the ground and wanted me to disappear. And we dropped about seven catches on the day, and it was quite embarrassing, actually. I remember talking to you on a, one of the, I think it was probably on one of Yorkshire's pre-season trips one, one day, and you summed up cricket batting form to me that day. You, you said that, I'll kind of paraphrase, but you basically said, you know, you can be feeling okay. You can turn up at a county game. You can get out for naught, run out or something like that in the, in the first innings. You don't get to bat in the second innings. You then a week later, you kind of, you saw off for LBW in the first, not for next to nothing. And it can snowball very quickly, can't it, cricket form? And I know you, you, you're a big thinker about how the brain works in sport and stuff like that. And I, I find, find that kind of stuff very, very interesting indeed, how a batsman copes and how a batsman can bounce back from a, a poor run of form. And you, you had that in your own career as well, didn't you? You know, every, every batsman has that. Yeah, I think that, you know, I mean, I was doing very, very well at a young age. And, you know, captain of Young England at 19 and doing very well and doing very, very well for Yorkshire. And, you know, there was talk about playing at the higher level and, and things happen for me uh, more off the field that affected me on it. Nothing serious when, in hindsight, it's just growing up, really, uh, that affected one's confidence and self-belief. And, and you know, Yorkshire was um, not an easy place to play in, not a lot of empathy. Things weren't going particularly well. Not many people to really communicate with in, a, in, in, in the soft stuff, if you like, the emotional sort of stuff. So you were very much sort of on your own to try and manage and cope. And... Um, Difficult at times, and, and I think I went through my career probably at times lacking a little bit of confidence and self-belief, and so that didn't quite achieve what I thought I might be capable capable of, and, and, and that was to play at the highest level. You know, but in, in hindsight with all that, it's probably stood me in good stead to be to be where I am as a coach, really, because I think I've kind of got a good idea on what a young person may be going through in times of adversity. So, therefore, I've probably had some of those experiences one can relay back to, to, to players who may, may be going through a difficult period. And I was speaking to Mags, the aforementioned Anthony McGrath. He, he's commented in the past, hasn't he, that you were always very helpful to him because he had periods of inconsistency in his his um, cricket career for Yorkshire as well. And there's a, I think there's a misconception sometimes with coaching that you know it's not always the the best players or the most successful players that make the best coaches. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I mean, there's there's lots of guys who have played at the highest level who've been fantastic coaches. There's there's lots of guys who not played much first-class cricket at all, if any, you have been very successful coaches. So I think it's more about the person. You know, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I have I always feel as though I've been at my best when I'm sat in the middle of a club. And what I mean by that is almost like when I've been second 11 sort of batting coach, you know, it allows you to, you know, you're not on the front line of selection with first team. Um, so you're not making those decisions. And it allows you, you know, to build trust and, with, with, with players, which happens over a period of time. And I, I think that's, that's kind of my philosophy of coaching, really, is to, when you're sat in the middle of a club, you, you know, you've kind of got a foot in both camps. You've got one in a coach's camp and a foot in a player's camp. And I, and I see that's when I've been at my best because if you can get the trust of a, of a player and, and, and really get side whatever it is that you're working on, I, 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 I find that a quite special place to be. 
you don't have to mention any names in this answer, but I, I, I'd imagine that some of the most satisfying moments as a, as a as a cricket coach or any sporting coach is if you're dealing with a player who you know is struggling, you know you've had a few conversations and you, you know, you're hoping that you're helping them and then you see them come out the other end of it and start to succeed again. I'd imagine you sat there on the on the balcony or wherever you sat in the ground thinking that's that's brilliant. That I've had a bit of a part to play in that and, and great stuff. That that lad's starting to achieve again. Yeah, well, the one thing you you can never do is, uh, you know, once you've played the game, is 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 replace that adrenaline of making that, you know, that big score or taking that brilliant catch. But you know, the next best thing for me is to see guys that you've you've worked with and hope, hopefully had some influence on going out there and coming through if if it is a tricky moment and doing well and. And been successful. It's very satisfying. I've I've seen you at grounds. A you know going out there and actually being out there in the nets and what have you coaching, but also taking players to one side and sitting sitting somewhere in the ground and just having a, a long conversation with them. How, how much of of coaching? I mean, I guess it changes from player to player, but how much of coaching is just having a chat and just being there for somebody to play at the highest level? You've obviously got to be skillful and you need to be able to play the game. But anybody who plays at the highest level first-class cricket is good at cricket, and then there's all the other aspects: the you know the the tactical, the the lifestyle, the physical, all those things that the mental stuff that goes with being a, a top player. And I wouldn't be the only one in firmly believing that the, the biggest percentage of, uh, of of strengths that you need for for being a top player is is mental strength and, and, and mental toughness. So I would say that that's. Probably, apart from, obviously, first of all, you need the ability. But it's, it's kind of having the mental strength and being able to be to, to manage and cope with what comes before you in professional sport. Let's take you back to when you were a young, a young kid, um, long before you got into the Yorkshire side. Was there, a, was there a cricket hero? Was there somebody you looked at in the Yorkshire side or the England side that would be the poster boy that inspired you? Well, you know, it's funny that I was never... I didn't really have cricket heroes. Gary Sobers was one I used to watch on telly and think, wow, watching him bat left-handed and bowl his left-arm spin- spinners and his and his left-arm outswingers. And I'd think, wow, it, it, that, that's great. But my real heroes were in football. It was Sprague, Greeny, Cooper, Brenda, Charlton, Hunter, Laurie McClark, Jones, Giles and Gray. Substitute <laughs> Maidley. <laughs> but I can remember, you know, I, I can remember when I made my... You know, my debut for Yorkshire at Scarborough, I, I, there was obviously some very big names in there, the, the boycotts and Hampshire's, Chris Old, Jeff Cope, all these sorts of guys. But I didn't feel overly intimidated by that, as I did when I met Norman Hunter one day. Really? Yeah. That, well, did, did, he didn't bite your legs, did he? <laughs> we were kicking rugby balls over some posts for charity at Castleford Rugby League Club. And... You know, he'd been one of my heroes as a as a kid, and so to actually meet him and and do that with him, I um, I was lost for words for once, Jim. Can you believe that? That's something, isn't it? <laughs> we'll get Norman Hunter back in more often. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you talk about walking into that Yorkshire dressing room and, and some of the big names that were in there, and it doesn't get much bigger than boycott, does it? In terms of Yorkshire cricket, really, that that was not something that faced you at all. I don't think it ever fazed me being around Jeff. Or I mean, Boyce sent me home on my first day as a, as a young professional. Do you know that? No. Yeah. Well, as I walk, when I walked into the dressing room at, at Headingley in the old dressing room on my first day, I walked in with my cricket bag and a pair of jeans and a t-shirt on. The first guy I walked into was a chap called Jeffrey Boycott. 
And he looked at me and he said, uh, oh, he said, uh, what's your name? I said, Kevin, Kevin Sharp. He says, all right, he said. He says, look, he says, just go put your bag over there in that corner. Go home and put some decent clothes on. <laughs> he said, have you got here today? I says, well, I says, I'll just come on the bus. I only live at Meanwood up the road. He says, right, well, go get back on that bus and put some decent clothes on and come back. And so I went home on the bus and my mum was in in the kitchen and she said, what are you doing? And I told her I'd been sent home to put some clothes on. So I went back in a pair of trousers, an open neck shirt and a jacket. And I walked back in the dressing room and it was just getting near lunchtime then. So I'd missed the whole morning session. And he looked at me and he said, that's better. He said, boycott, pleased to meet you. <laughs> so that was my first day as a professional cricketer. Got sent home by the great man. But, you know, I was never kind of felt with Jeff. I mean, Jeff was, you know, very obviously very forthright and obviously opinionated and very blunt in many ways, but obviously spoke fantastic sense and knowledge about the game. But I travelled with him for a lot when I was younger, when I first sort of had passed my driving test. Lived in, in Durkin, where he lived in Woolley, and we used to travel a lot together to games. I used to drive his BMW, which I liked doing, and I was never really phased by him. He was helpful to me in the winters when I stopped going abroad. He helped me fix up some coaching and things like that so I could earn a few quid. So, no, not really intimidated or phased, but I'm sure, I mean, I know there were, were plenty of players who would have been. And you, you look around that Yorkshire dressing room. I mean, David Bairstow is somebody that I watched when I, was a, when I was a kid and one of the legends of Yorkshire cricket. There were some big names in that, that side, weren't there? Some big names and David, uh, again, in my first week, um, on the last day of the first week at Headingley, after Boggs had sent me home on the first day, John Hampshire had made my hands bleed on the third day on the slip cradle, catching, and he told me that if I was going to be a professional creator, I had to go through some hard yards. And David Burstow hung me on a peg on the Friday uh, for being cheeky to him. <laughs> what did you say to him? Uh, I'm sorry. And eventually, over the years, we became quite good friends. And, you know, it was obviously really sad what happened with David, but um, but we became quite good mates, certainly in the, the second half of the period that I played for Yorkshire with him. If you could trade lives, Kevin Sharp, with any current cricketer for a day, you can live in their skin, you can have their life, you can do whatever they do for 24 hours, who would you choose? Oh, man. Who would I choose if I could in today's day and age? D Smith. I'd like to know how he can play with that with that technique. It's not a technique that you'd probably choose as a batting coach to teach people, is it? Well, it isn't. No, and and this is what the thing is. This is where you need to be really careful as a coach that help young players present the full face of the bat to the ball. It's normally done with a fairly fairly straight backswing. Well. Steve Smith doesn't do it that way, but yet he can do it ever so well. So I think the learnings, the le I'd love to have a chat to him about batting uh, mm. and just talk me through where this basic technique came from and how he managed to do it. It reminds me of a sketch I've seen of um, Sir Donald Bradman batting, where he, he apparently he used to practice with a, a stump and he'd throw a golf ball against the wall and he'd pick it up with his bottom hand, he'd swing it out to point and back round and put his top hand on it and and play the shot, but still present a, a full face of the bat to the ball. You would not teach that, because you, if you did, then you wouldn't have many players who'd be successful. I always think with players like Steve Smith, 
Chanderpool to an extent as well. And, and there's a few examples, aren't there, of people with quirky techniques that have got to the very highest level. At some stage, you'd imagine they've had to turn around to somebody like yourself as a batting coach or somebody that's been in charge of a team and say, I'm doing it my way. So they've got a little bit about them, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, I I think as a coach, I mean, if somebody did something, I mean, my experience now would tell me that if a player did something unusual, the first thing that you would, the first question you would ask is, are they doing it well? And, and, and are they being successful in doing it that way? And and if you think that they are, is there any reason to, 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 to want to change anything? And, and sometimes it's no, definitely, definitely not, because an orthodox cannot, can sometimes be the best. Mm. Um, so you know, I think that we all know what how to the basics of picking a bat a bat up and the alignment, stability, and balance that a batsman would need. But sometimes the quirkiness is is the best. I want to put you, Kevin Sharp, in charge of world cricket for a day. You're behind your big desk. You're the man. You're the supremo. What would you change first about world cricket to make it better? Probably not quite ask, answering the question, but I am quite concerned about. Been a, a bit of an old fart and a traditionalist. I'm a little bit concerned about where red ball cricket might be heading. You know, I wish I had a, I wish I had a ball and I knew where red cricket was going to be in ten years' time. We've had the the introduction of obviously the the shorter form of the game over the last few years, which has been enormously successful. And you know, I I really admire what young you know, what not just young players, but what players can do in general with the skills, with the bat and the ball. And I admire that and, and long may that continue. But I hope that, you know, I hope that red ball cricket is not sidelined in any way. I know it doesn't have the crowds in it, but it's called test cricket for a reason. And that's because it's the biggest test. When you talk to youngsters coming through at county level now, I mean, you, you have chats about all sorts of different things. I know you do, but do, do they still talk about Test cricket in the same way that we would think of Test cricket, or are they are they looking at white ball cricket and thinking of dollar signs? Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I think it, I think on the whole, I mean we at Worcester now, I mean we put great emphasis on practicing all formats because you have to because these young lads have to learn to play T Twenty cricket, fifty over cricket, and the longer form. Uh, but you know we do put great emphasis on on the basics of learning to play the basics of the game which will then allow you to go on and experiment and play with some of the more uh, adventurous type type of strokes you know so that that reminds me of what um michael carberry said to me recently he said that you know he, t20 cricket came around once he'd established his, his first class career and he therefore was able to add to solid foundations where you hear other stories about kids coming in and the first shot they want to play is the the paddle sweep or the you know the slog sweep or something like that which isn't your isn't your basis of the game is it no it's not and you know i think what's interesting is uh, if we took an example out of i mean most players I suggest would probably initially start coming through the traditional route into, and then and then into improvisation. But if you if you took someone like say for example David Warner, the Australian, he came the other way, didn't he? Yeah. He came in through T Twenty cricket or One Day cricket initially without hardly playing any first class cricket. I don't believe. And then you know he's he's managed to then learn how to play Test cricket going the other way. So I guess that's that's quite unusual, and you wouldn't get many of those. Or, or although I'm probably guessing in today's day and age, it, it may start to happen 
a little bit more often. But, you know, I am a traditionalist and I can't help but think that the best route to go down would be to have a good basis of a technique and then allow players to, to find out what they're good what they're good and what they're not so good at. And I, I would suspect that we, we will finish up in the end having red ball players and white ball players with the odd one who plays both. Discover one of the most beautiful lifestyle resorts in the Caribbean at the Accra Beach Hotel and Spa. Located on the south coast of Barbados, this beachfront property offers 224 rooms, sparkling pools, four restaurants, three bars, an on-site spa, event and conferencing facilities, and a welcoming team providing unparalleled relaxation to make your stay a memorable one. What are you waiting for? Book your reservation at this award-winning hotel today and experience the Caribbean dream. How would a young Kevin Sharp get on these days if you were starting your career now, if you were, what, 70 years younger? How would you fit into if you were starting out, say at Worcester now, and you were starting out with all three formats at your disposal, and you had the same game? How would you get on? Do you think? Well, I think I'd be quite excited by it. You know, even back in the day, don't forget that as kids we played twenty over cricket, mm. albeit with three slips in a gully. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so we, we grew up on as kids on twenty over cricket, evening cricket at your clubs and that sort of thing. So we 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 have played it, but obviously under 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 different circumstances with all the power plays and all that. Now it's very different. But I mean, you know, I recall going back and playing against Sussex at Headingley once when Imran Khan was bowling. That was interesting, trying to trying to slog him. We didn't get many of him, but you know, I think I'd be quite excited by it, and I think I'd enjoy it actually. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking probably even at my tender age of um, of sixty germs going on. 61 and still been involved in the game I guess one of the reasons for that is that I've kind of been able to embrace the change on what 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 how it's evolved I sit here thinking back now of my days when I first went back to Yorkshire of the first season of T20 cricket I think it was 2003 and I can remember that that first year when it all started and playing a practice match at Headingley in April where nobody could get a bat on ball because it was seeming all over the place. And, you know, that first game, one of the first games at Headingley where the game started at 5.30 and at 5.30 there was a few people coming in through the gate and we were thinking there won't be a big crowd and suddenly by quarter to six it was all the the Western Terrace was packed. Mm. I remember Matthew Wood coming off saying, God, it's like playing a, a cup final. So, you know, it's evolved and, and I think that for me, I, I think I'd enjoy it. I think I'd, I, I, although it, it's, I understand the challenge that lads have in adapting from T20 to championship cricket. But fortunately, I think the structure this last year or two of, of separating the tournaments generally anyway has been beneficial for the players to be able to adapt. 
I came along in that first season at Henley Kev. It was before I started working at Yorkshire and I came along as a punter to watch some of those early T20 games. And I think it cost me about two quid to get in, which was next to nothing because nobody knew what to expect and nobody knew what to charge for it because it could have been something that just disappeared overnight and we just went back to normal. But it hung around, didn't it? You don't, I thought you'd climbed over the wall, James, and not paid two quid. Don't tell anybody that. Eh? But no, I mean, nobody did know what to expect. I think that... Um, you know, it was it was new. Nobody knew. I think there was only five matches then. I think we only played about five matches, so nobody knew what to expect. Nobody knew if there was going to be anybody watching, and it, it became popular quite quickly. I mean, the crowds were very good. I, I mean, I've got to really like T20, and I'm a traditionalist, but I, I quite like the kind of the diversion of watching somebody just smashing a ball about for a, a few hours and, and what have you. But um, I mean, as you, as you probably know, I set up the I suppose the hundred Twitter feed, and that's got quite a following now, and very much against I think a four format because I, I just think there isn't room in the calendar for it. And one of my reasons for that is that I want to see 18 counties survive, and I want to see 18 counties flourish and be supported. When people start to talk about counties being surplus to requirements they talk about the Derbyshire's the Leicestershire's potentially the Worcestershire's as well and I'd, I'd quite like to get your opinion on where you see Worcestershire fit into that and whether you think Worcestershire are a threat from you know the new competition I don't think so at the moment I mean we're a very well-run club um, that manages its finance ex- finances extremely well and we're probably in a better position I'm suggesting than than some others but of course, again, I'll go back to being a tra- traditionalist and say that, you know, 18 counties is what we've known for a long time. And, and I, I, you know, kind of hope that that's going to continue. But, you know, we have to, you know, we, I, I've seen some of your, you know, I've seen some of your articles on this. And, uh, and I can get why some people would, 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 would feel threatened and, and probably not looking forward to it. But on the other hand, uh, you know, things never stand still. And things do evolve, and you know it will be, it will be interesting to see. I mean, whether it's going to happen this summer or not now is is debatable mm. due to the the problems that we have. But it'll be interesting to see what the crowds are like. It'll be interesting to see how how the public do respond to it. I'm sure it'll get very good television audiences, and whether whether it will get, um, you know, say for example whether. Someone from Worcester would want to get a train into Edgebaston on a Friday night and watch a game is debatable. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Like you say, I mean, we it's almost pointless, isn't it, kind of speculating about what's going to happen for the rest of this summer because anything could happen, really. Um, I've, I've kind of half of me has set myself up to think, right, I'm not going to see any cricket this summer because then I'll be pleased if I do. I've kind of kind of prepared myself to, for no cricket almost this, this summer, Kev. I know, I, I know, and it's like when you, you know, you look at the news, it hits on more and more that it seems quite apparent now that a three-week a three week isolation is, it's going to be far more than that. It seems very unlikely hearing what we're hearing and, you know, does it mean that if there is any cricket played, we're going to be played behind closed doors as well? Interested to know how that would work, Kev, because the... The way the virus is, and I'm not a, a doctor and neither are you, but you'd have to presumably 
isolate some of the players for a week or two prior to any matches starting. You'd have to keep them separate from everybody throughout that period. You yourself as a coach would have to be kept separate from, from people as well. You'd almost have to be in a hotel on your own, wouldn't you, out of the way of everybody. But the way that cricket's played and the competitive juices that flow through cricketers, I can't imagine a player running in, taking a prize wicket, not being smothered by his teammates with everybody, certainly within two metres of each other. You shine the ball with the spit from your saliva and then rub it on your trousers and pass the ball around the field. It seems to me not the not the ideal sport to play behind closed doors when you're trying to actually contain a virus. Well, I understand what you're saying and I, and I suppose that the next few weeks will will tell us an awful lot. It can only be played even behind closed doors if it's deemed to be safe. Yeah. But, you know, the medical advisors are telling us that, that it might be six months before we're in a safer place. If you could meet anyone, living or dead, who would you like to meet? Dalai Lama. Any particular reason? Yeah, I like the Buddhist thing. I like the spiritual stuff. I think as I've got older, I've once read a book called The Secret, written by a woman called Rhonda Byrne, and it's about being thankful for what we have, you know, being positive about life and not being negative. And I don't strikes me as though this fellow, the Dalai Lama, would be just so fascinating to just sit and have a beer with him. We could have a beer. They're going to make Sharpie the movie. Steven Spielberg's got the uh, script. Who would play you in Sharpie the movie? <laughs> so, right, OK. So who would play me? David Gower. <laughs> you were always compared to him, weren't you? I was, yeah. I was as, as, as youngsters. He had similar sort of hair. He's, David was always a couple of years older. But yeah, there the, the were people who said that. But you, honestly, the amount of times that people have said to me, you just look like David Gower. <laughs> so I said, thank you. I wish you had as many runs as him. <laughs> What's the last time you can remember feeling really nervous? The last time I felt really nervous. Were you a nervous player? <laughs> yeah, right. Were you, a, were you a nervous player before an innings? Were you a, a bag of nerves or were you always fairly calm? No, I think there was always the tension and adrenaline. Uh, but, but I think that's important. Um, a little bit of anxiety. I think I, personally, I, I, as long as it's channeled in the right direction and it's not you know, overly nervous. I think it, it brings out the best of a player. And, and I'll tell you this now, and I, I, this is an interesting question because I've got a really good answer to this, I think. When I retired from playing, I can remember it, we, we, we're going back. So I was down in Shropshire. I retired from playing minor counties cricket and club cricket in the late 90s. Jan, my wife, said to me that, you know, around about March time, she says, what, what are you going to do instead of playing? So I said, well, I'd play a bit of golf and this and that. And she says, well, why don't we do some walking? So I thought, walking? That sounds a bit boring. But anyway, we, we, we did and it was fantastic. And we walked every Saturday. But I'd, I'd actually, not that that's relevant, but I'd actually put myself down to play two games of cricket for the MCC. One against Reeking College in Telford and one against Ellesmere College up in North Shropshire. Early April that year, I got stomachache. And I got like this stomachache that rumbled on for weeks, and I was getting, um, I was getting a bit worried about it, and I was going to go see a doctor. And then, I think it was round about the fifth of May, this MCC came came up against the uh, the schoolboys at Reeking College, and I was batting at number four. I felt sick. I felt nervous. 
and I sat there thinking, why am I nervous batting against the school team when I've retired from playing, really? And I went out to bat, and I got a few runs. I got 30 or 40, I think. And I came off and fielded and that. And then that evening, stomach cake had gone. And I then realised what that stomach cake was, and it was pre-season nerves. Yeah. Pre-season tension that I hadn't released. So normally, you'd go into pre-season early April, and you'd play and you'd release all that tension. Well, since I'd left school, I'd been used to pre-season sort of anxiety and excitement, and I hadn't released it. And so by playing in that one game, being so nervous, it released it straight away and had no problem after that. Do you still get that now? Do you get nervous ahead of a season as a coach? Uh, excited. And, you know, I mean, it's, um, you know, you work hard in the winter, uh, you know, from November pretty much indoor right the way through to pre-season tour. It's, 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 it's indoor work, so you're ready, for, you're ready for the real stuff, you know, for match play. And I, you know, like, like everybody else up to this last couple of weeks, was really excited about, you know, you know the lads have worked hard, you know they've practised well, you're excited for them to do well. And so, yeah, but obviously we've had all that now taken away from us, really. If there's, if there's a player currently who has the same kind of, like, setup as yourself, they thought the season was going to start in April and they were getting themselves geared up for that. They've got no release for those nerves at the moment because they've got no idea where that starting line is, have they? Well, it it's, must be so strange for the players. You know, I mean, obviously we're, we're in isolation, but, you know, we keep in touch, but it's not the same. And I think that you know, I keep in touch by telephone or Skype or, you know, this the WhatsApp video, but it's not the same as... Is obviously going out there and doing stuff and doing and playing the game, but I, I can't imagine what you know what what, it, what that must be like. I suppose you have to be philosophical and, and and take it for what it is. But when you've put in all the hard work over the you know the winter and then you you geared up because we were only a week away from Abu Dhabi going on pre-season tour and the club uh, decided that we wouldn't go on that, which was absolutely a you know, the right decision to see where we are now, then it, it, it's kind of, I suppose, that initially we had two weeks isolation and then obviously now what we are doing, like everybody else, is following government guidelines with the hope that you're thinking, well, it'd be really nice to start practising again in May and maybe start early June. But, you know, is that going to be the case? And I suppose the demoralising thing is that where we, what, what is going to happen? Are we going to play at all? Very difficult. What is the top item on your bucket list, Kevin Sharp? Things to do before you die. What would you like to do before you, you leave this mortal coil? Well, I go to New Zealand for a few weeks. Went there as a kid on a Derek Robbins tour. Went on Derek Robbins' last tour in 1980. We toured we had a, a week in Sydney in Australia, 10 days in Tasmania and a month in New Zealand. And I can remember uh, we went through New Zealand by coach and I can remember thinking, oh, this looks all right, but probably never quite appreciated the countryside and the scenery. And now that, you know, really keen on getting up in the mountains and the hills and, and, and walking and getting exercise in that way, love to go back there and, 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 do, and, and go to some of the, you know, do some sightseeing and, uh, and see that. I'd also like to see the Northern Lights, maybe up in Iceland or something like that. On a scale of one to ten, ten's the fonds. How cool are you? <laughs> I'm not sure I can ask that question. Probably about three. 
<laughs> but you know that. What, that, what would you put me down as? I'd, I'd probably go back two and a half, Kev. Would you? <laughs> no, I, over, I overrated myself for that. <laughs> if you had access to a time machine, you can go forwards or backwards. Where would you like to go? Well, now we've talked about red ball cricket and saying what it's going to be like in 10 years' time. Let's go there. <laughs> See if it's still being played. See if we play red ball cricket in 10, 20 years' time. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you choose to live? Well, I've kind of, sounds a bit boring, this. I mean, I suppose I've always been kind of happy where I've been, but it'd be somewhere warm. It'd be a warm climate. Barbados. Good answer. Good place, Barbados. <laughs> nice beaches, good food, nice glass and rum, nice Banksy's beer. All good. There's worse things. There are worse things. Two questions left of your 20 questions, Kevin Sharp. What will you be doing in 10 years' time? Well, we'd like to travel. From a coach's perspective, I, 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 I still think I'd want to have be able to do some mentoring or a little bit of one-to-one coaching if, if I'm still got my marbles then. Uh, I'd still hope that I could have something to offer being it on very much a part-time basis. We're quite aspirational in wanting to travel and see places in the world and it's money's the problem, isn't it? We've got to have enough of it. So, But that's the plan. I mean, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm 61 coming up next week. I'm still very much involved in employment. I'm loving it so much that, you know, that that's going to continue for a while. But certainly... 10 years down the line, I'd like to think that I've done a lot of travel and still perhaps involved as a, a coach to a degree on a on very much a part-time basis. We've reached question number 20. And this is a question that some people struggle with. If you've been picking this, the questions for this interview, if you've been me, what would you have asked yourself to get a great and exclusive answer? How professional was I as a young player? And are you going to answer that for us? <laughs> Not as professional as I am now. <laughs> Back in the day, it's interesting how how times have changed. The game was quite sociable back as a kid. It was probably a bit more alcohol drunk at the close of play, but there was a lot more communication between players and umpires after a game. Everybody would get to know each other and talk. So probably in light of that, I may have gone off the rail on the odd occasion. Would you believe? I can't believe that at all. Got led astray by others. I wouldn't blame myself for it, of course. <laughs> Kevin Sharp, it's been an absolute joy to have you back on the Cricket Badger podcast. Happy birthday for next week. And uh, I'll catch up with you soon, mate. Great to speak to you, James. Keep in touch. And good luck with the beard. <laughs> it's that Badger style. My thanks to Kevin Sharp. I hope he had a good birthday and I hope he's back in there at New Road very, very soon indeed, preparing Worcestershire for some cricket action. It might be some time yet, in all honesty, but there's always hope. And I'm sure, like me, you want to see some cricket back being played very soon indeed. Thanks again to tvsportsblogs.com and new sponsors of the Cricket Badger podcast. I've been James and I'll see you again on the next edition of the podcast until then look after each other stay safe out there and i'll see you very soon indeed on the cricket badger podcast
Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.